Okay, let's get started. Tonight we're going to do it on a subject that I think is so important. And it's called Don't Blame God. I want y'all to think about that for a minute. Don't blame God. Have you ever known somebody that blamed God for something? You haven't? Mm-hmm. Have you ever been tempted to blame God for something? Because we've been talking about offenses, and one of the strongest offenses, I think, could be if we started blaming God for something. So we're going to start in Genesis 2, verse 17, and it's man in the Garden of Eden. And God tells us, you must not, you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat of it, you certainly will die. So it's very clear, don't eat of this tree or you're going to die. And I want you to notice something. It wasn't a on-the-spot falling down dead, was it? When he said you're going to die, when they took it, you know, if Eve had just dropped dead before she handed it to Adam, then Adam would have gone, I'm not eating that. You know, it would have been a different story. So it wasn't an on-the-spot falling down dead. And I want you to think what the temptation is. If you'll look in uh, Genesis 3.3, it tells you what the snake actually said to Eve. And I want you to notice this because I think it's the basis for all temptations. I think every single temptation falls in this. And you'll hear it preached so many different ways. But it says, from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you'll die. Now, we're not exactly sure where the touch it came from. But it says, the serpent looked at her and said, you surely shall not die. He said, for God knows. Now, this is what I want you to catch here. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Now, this is interesting to think you'll be like God when you've already been made in the image of God. I always thought that was an interesting contrast. You'll be like God in the days that you eat of it. Now, the temptation here that I think is relevant to every temptation is God's lying to you. And I think everything that we face is a doubting the character of God. Like, God doesn't want you to be like Him. He knows the day you eat of it, you'll be wise like Him. You'll know the difference between good and evil. And so he starts seeing this concept here that immediately the serpent is throwing a hatchet or he's throwing something at the character of God. Now, all through your life, people, the devil, is going to be trying to discredit how you look at God. That's going to be the foundation of every temptation is God doesn't have your best interest in mind. You know, I can always tell when you grow up because you get mature enough and go, I didn't realize that God was telling me no on that because he actually had my best interest in mind. I didn't realize that he was telling me this thing for my own good. And so your maturity level comes when you realize that God has your best interest in mind. I see you happen around 21, 22. You think, my parents are so, oh, you know, they have so many, uh, and it's always for their own benefit. But then there comes a point you get to a certain age and you're like, oh, you know, you go, now that I'm a parent, I see why they said that. You know, and you realize that it's for your best interest. Well, this is what's happening here, is that the enemy comes in at the deepest core of who you are. And he tries to talk you into thinking God doesn't have your best interest in mind. He tries to make you think that God, that the deepest part of God doesn't want you to be like him. 
that there's something God's withholding from you. He doesn't want you to know it. He's trying to hide it from you. That God knows that if you get this, you'll be wise like God. And so therefore, he's trying to keep this from you. Do you see why this temptation is different than anything we think of? You know, I never hear people talk about the temptation like that. I hear them talk about it in all kinds of different ways. But honestly, the foundation of the temptation was whether God's at fault, whether God's guilty, whether God really does have your best in mind, whether God's afraid of you. Like, is God afraid of you that if you do this, you'll become like God? And so the temptation is the knowledge of the good and evil. You know, it would make more sense to me if it was laid out with the tree of life on one side and the tree of evil on the other. That would make a whole lot more sense to me. The fact that this one's so odd is that the tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That that was the tree. It wasn't, it wasn't just a clear cut, this is the tree of evil. It's a tree that is mixed and it's saying, if you get into that. So what I was going to tell you is, Adam and Eve take a look at this situation. And the snake's talking to them going, God doesn't want you to know this. God is actually trying to mess your head up. He's trying to do this to you. And so they reach down and they pick up the snake and they start petting the snake. And they say, Mr. Snake, thank you for telling this to us. Look how tasty the little apple looks on the tree. Look how, how tasty this looks. And there's only one tree they don't have to eat of. But think of the garden. They must have had thousands of other kinds of trees. You know, that garden had at least hundreds of different types of trees. So it's like there was one little tree. Don't eat of it. It's very limited. And all these others you can eat of. So you got to think of this for a minute and you think, wow, you can climb the palm tree and drink coconut milk. You know, there's all types of different thousands of trees. There's apple trees, orange trees, peach trees, cherry trees, fig trees, pear trees, all different types of those types. You know, God makes each one individual. You know, and then he has the kind of trees that are like the nut trees, you know, pecan trees, walnut and there's all those different trees you can eat of. And then there's the International Pavilion. And over here, since I've just come from this country, the Philippine trees. You know, each country has their set of trees. And on those trees are the Ramadan. If you ever go to the Philippines, you've got to look on your calendar and go, what season is Ramadan? Because those are so good. It's this red, furry little thing. And it looks like a spider. And that's so all the foreigners won't eat it. Because it is the best tasting fruit ever. This ramaton fruit. You're like, you know, I used to come back. And you know how it says, don't have any fruits or vegetables on you? Well, you can't help it if the cooks pack your luggage. And you just flat don't know that one whole empty suitcase is all ramaton. <laughs> and then I get the reputation of being the ramaton dealer. And so people break into my house, they get into my bottom drawer of my refrigerator because I have Ramadan. And it's just a fan club of all of us together at Unitsis and Bonses because it's the Ramadan tree. I know that the Ramadan tree wasn't evil. That is the good tree in the garden. The Philippines has the mango tree. It has the jackfruit tree. It has, that, it has the tree that bears that big old fruit. And you remember when you open it up, it smells like dirty socks. Yeah, you know, Duran. Yeah, you, there's just no words. But you make yourself eat Duran because you feel like you're Filipino when you do it. So the garden has all these different trees. 
Like it's so much fun being in the garden. But God has one tree that he limits us. And it's called the forbidden tree. And this is what I have to ask you for. Do you have an area in God that you allow him to have forbidden territory to you? You know, I know a lot of Christians and they go, I'll serve God and I'm a Christian as long as God doesn't ever forbid anything from me. And I had the Lord ask me once, he goes, do you allow me to ever forbid something? Like, can, can God ever tell you no on something and you still be okay? Or is there something in your human nature flesh, I can't, be, I can't have God ever tell me no on anything. If that's so, you don't realize that God has your best interest in mind. You're, you're still that young little kid thinking that God's withholding something from you. So you don't realize that yet. So at this point, that's what happened is there was, a, there was something about this where there was a limiting. And we were talking about this today. It's like God has put this natural quality in you of curiosity. I don't know if any of you heard Sunday's sermon. But curiosity is something God put in your soul. It is a God-given gift. People that are without curiosity, I'm like, oh, I don't want them. Don't bring them to the group. I don't like people that aren't curious. You have to be curious. Curious is what gets you to go with me to the Philippines. Curious is what makes you do crazy stuff with me. Curious is what drives you to God. Now, there's a people group. Now, I don't know if I should say the name of them, but I've worked really close with, with them, and they're the most curious group of people on the face of the earth. And because they're God's people, God put extra curiosity in them. Like, drive you over the edge curious people. Like, they can't help it. Their whole culture is curious. In fact, if you have one drop of this blood in you, you're curious. You can't help yourself. It's a bad... It's like a... It's like something that's diagnosable. I mean, they're so curious. But you know what's so strange about it? The very gift that God put in them to drive them to Him, they use it to explore every evil thing on earth. Mystics, New Age, they're the ones, everything's okay, but they ban one thing. God, don't be curious about, you know, don't be curious about... Isaiah 53. I mean, it's odd that the most curious group of people on earth, I mean, literally, they don't use their curiosity in the right direction. I mean, they're hyper-spiritual, but they're into yoga, new age, everything. They just start over the edge and fall over the, uh, over the cliff. And so I was thinking about it. This is what we're faced here in the garden. And in this is a box. And in this box is the knowledge of of good and evil. I'm going to call it Pandora's box. Once you open it, you can't get it closed again. And if you think about a perfect garden with everything going absolutely perfect, no sickness, I mean, it literally is heaven on earth. People get along. No, There's no marital fighting. Everything is just nice in the garden. It's so wonderful. God walks with them in the cool of the day. But man wanted to know. I want to know a curiosity about good and evil. And in that box, it's like this box here. And it's represented with what is in this box. And I can tell you what's in this box. Pat brought me his rattlesnakes. 
And in this box are rattlesnakes. And I want so bad to reach in this box and find out what is in here that God's hiding from me. And sure enough, I mean right there, you just have the rattlesnakes, you have every weird, imaginable, sorry thing that I put in your bed and you sleep at my house, that everything in the world starts coming out of evil. And y'all, I don't know if you have to live long enough to finally say, if I could trade and go back, I would give up the knowledge of evil. I would give up the what I've seen of evil on this earth to go back to what the garden was like. I wish I could put it all back in the box. You know, you get hurt bad enough in life. You get your heart broken. You get things going wrong. And you want to put every single thing back in that box. You know, I've done a lot of counseling. A lot of kids pour out their hearts to me. And I would have thought in all the years of, of working with kids, you know, there, there was a lot of things I never did. Like, I, I never did all the stuff teenager rebellion kids did. But I've counseled with a thousand and one people that have. And if any of them could trade it, all they would do is trade it because it brought hurt and pain. Like, none of them are happy with it. They're like, oh my gosh, it just kind of screwed up something. Like, you can't ever get your innocence back. Not, not on your own. Not apart from the Lord. But something pushes us towards that box. And that's what it is. It's, it, it's this area of rebellion. Have you ever noticed it? Like, I think you can find it on Facebook. It's like you don't find people really seeking for God. They're seeking for... Like, you find it. Like, no, there's some great people, and, and they're on there. But, I mean, have you ever noticed? Some people, are just, they're just like, you have no common sense. You know, have you ever found yourself getting into a fight with one of them? You're like, you can't fix it in there. So, at this point, you look at the temptation in the garden, and I have to say to you, Adam and Eve didn't even put up a fight. You'd like to think it at least took an hour for them to fall. You like to think that they said a few words of resistance of, oh, we really shouldn't do this. You know, I think maybe God has been too good to me to do this. I really think I know God loving. You would think there would be something in there that man did. No, they didn't even take a, put up a fight. They just eat. And so many times it's funny how quick temptation you can slip and how quick and how fast it goes. So at this point, when we're going to talk about blaming God, you have to make your theology include this box. You cannot talk about whether God's to blame or not without talking about this box has been forever opened. It, this is theologically a box that has opened up evil. We want it in the box. And boy, we got our taste of the surge. I mean, we got our taste of what it feels like. And if you haven't got your taste yet, hey, I'm going to say you must have parents praying and it protected you. Or you haven't lived long enough. Because in that box are those kind of things where literally you, you just go, it turns my stomach. Like, I see people and they start, they get old and they start thinking, I want out of this world because it's just, it's not getting any better. Like, we're educating everybody, but we're not somehow getting a conscience in people or core values or people aren't improving. I mean, we're getting scared of ourselves. 
in some ways or we kind of numb it. So in this box is what I would call fallen humanity. That humans have fallen. So this is where that concept of blaming God. That I've got to tell you the way that God originally made you as a man, as a woman, it's not how we are now. Because we've gone into this box. Okay, so the first thing that happens when they got in trouble is they started blaming what they could see. It's like a two-year-old. You know, we shake our heads and we go, oh, we're all guilty of that. The blame game. I want you to think about this. Adam is cornered. You know, this is a great commentary on Adam. He's caught red-handed. There's no doubt about what happened. And it's like a parent looking down and there's a brother and sister and the parent has seen what's happened between the brother and sister and they've seen them both do the crime. But the parent, he knows. But he asks anyway. And God knows and he asks, and he, what will Adam do at this moment? What will Adam say to God in his defense? What's he going to say of, all right, you told me I'd die if I'd do it and I did it. So what does Adam say? Yeah, what does he say in his defense? He does what any self-respecting man would do. He smokes screens and he says, the woman you gave me. It was, it was she who gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And they start pointing fingers at each other. First he says it's the woman and then he takes it and he puts it in another phrase. Look how man does it. You talk about men using reasoning. It was the woman. And he's looking at God and it's not good enough. And he goes, it's the woman you gave me. I mean, that takes it to another whole level. Do you see now where the lesson's coming from? It's the woman you gave me. It's the first case. Blaming God. Okay. It's the woman you gave me. Lord, it was her fault. She gave me the fruit, so I ate it. What was I supposed to do? Melissa, Melissa, what was I supposed to do? She's my wife. You know how it is, Lord. You know women. When your wife wants you to do something, what was I supposed to do? Say no and put up with all the grief she was going to give me? And anyway, who put her in the garden? You did it, God. You're the one that put her here. I was minding my own business, taking care of the animals, and you looked down and thought I needed her. You know, she wasn't my ideal. I'm not complaining, Lord, you know, because she's beautiful and cute and all that, but still, it was her. It was her ideal. You know, I didn't think it was such a great ideal. And blame. We got blame. Now, Eve doesn't blame Adam. She doesn't. She just blames the snake. So, it was her. It, it was Eve's ideal. And so, kind of, it's the facts on the table. It's blame. Now, nobody takes personal responsibility. I don't see anyone saying ownership here. The buck stops here. None of it. And so you're looking down, and we all look at this story and just shake our heads because we've all been there. We're just like, are you serious? Have you ever been caught in something terrible? And you do this number. Uh, it's interesting of the shifting blame. So first you blame what you can see. Your wife, your brother, your sister. You start blaming. And then secondly, you blame what you can't see. And this is where God is blamed. Now, since we're talking about it's gone down, it's kind of like the whole idea of society is to blame God. You know, science tells us we no longer need a God. We have advanced far enough, now we don't need God. We don't need a God in our worldview. 
I mean, there's famous guys that are thinkers and, and they come up with that. Or it's just the, the hard worker. You know, just be mad at the guy at top. Just be mad at the boss. You're always mad at whoever's top. You can always tell who the top is because people are always jealous of what's at the top. They don't do it downward. They always do it upward. So if you rise to a position, realize everybody hates you and wants you to fall and to take your place. That's the great part of being manager at where you work, Josh. That's how it works. And so it's the man at the top. It's the boss. You know, I had this guy. It's like a head game when people get into blame. Like, he was 31 years of age. And because he got into drugs about age 12, he had no ability to... Like, like if he had a problem in a day's time, he made it my problem. And I think he thought I was his mom. And the benefits of being mom, I couldn't figure out what the benefits were, but I could definitely see the negative. If his car wouldn't start and he didn't come to work for two hours, it was my fault because I didn't pick him up. If I gave him a car and the car didn't start, then it was my fault the car didn't start. If I gave him a car and he got pulled over because he didn't put a registration, it was my fault because I, I didn't get the registration. I was like, this guy has no, he has no personal strength. And so, like, he would do anything to tell me what his problems were. Well, the one good thing about the guy was he was clean from drugs. He's a good-looking guy. He could sell the Golden Gate Bridge. I liked him. But his being clean from drugs was something that we cherished. I mean, it was a treasure. He had had about a year and a half or two years. I met him clean from drugs. But he decides one day when... I didn't decide that after four days of not showing up and, and not using the car and not finding a way to get there, I was like, does 3M pick you up if your car doesn't work? You know, I was trying to figure out, you're in your 30s, you're, you're not 18. So if, if a big company, it happens, you know, because you told off my, my lady who took you and told her that you didn't want to have to wait while she ran in and got groceries. You didn't help her get her groceries, so she's kind of mad at you and don't want to pick you up anymore because you didn't have patience. And so I told him, you know, look, it looks like this isn't working. And so what he did to me, he hits me on Facebook. And he tells me, oh, the drug feels so good that you made me take. It is now my head's. And he starts describing, because of you, I fell off the wagon. I'm sitting there reading it, and it's like something evil speaking to me. Hurt. Oh my gosh, I hurt. I had been on my face in Mexico two or three in the morning praying for this guy, praying for him, praying for him. I had such big dreams for him. I wanted him to help me. We dreamed on projects. And literally, he sat there and he told me what it felt like to go back to drugs and have them where his mind was spinning and all this. And the whole time he's saying, Angie, 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 you did this to me. And you just thought, you know, I started with him clean. I started slow and easy. I gave him stuff, and this is how it goes down. That he's worse off. He's worse off. And so, thank the Lord, he's back on my Facebook trying to be friends, and he's clean again. But I'm like, you know, I'm like measuring my distance. And you know, I was thinking on the blame game. Some people blame God, and I tell you what happens. They disengage with God. It's kind of like I twist off, and I don't ever tell anyone that I'm just not where I used to be with God. 
And it, it's a disengagement that happens at the heart. When we have trouble in life, when we suffer for disappointment, turmoil, or tragedy, we may be tempted to lay the blame at God's door. We may even say, is God doing this to me? And that's the question we've got to answer. Is he? Is God doing it? I mean, it's easy to say an answer, no. It's easy to say an answer, yeah. What is the answer to this question? I mean, realistically. I'm going to take you through. Would you all like to have some scriptures on this so you'd know? Because you've got to answer for yourself the worst blow you've ever had in your life. The thing that hurts you the most, the thing that gives you the most pain, is God a contributing factor to it? Did he have anything to do with it? You know, in our own thinking, perhaps in the presence of others, we complain of our difficulty, and then we claim or leave the impression that God did this to us. You know, if you've done this, you're not the first Christian to have felt angry with God. And when you're in pain, there's an urge to blame him. We Christians can be prone in our pain to point a finger and raise our fist at heaven. If we believe in God at all, we believe he is bigger and stronger and all-powerful. He's the guy on top, so therefore he's to be blamed. This is a natural inclination. It just happens. When you're in pain, I don't, I don't care who you are, you immediately go to this position. So getting angry at pain is kind of like getting angry at a surgeon who cuts on you. I really don't see anybody complain of. Like, there's no group on Facebook that goes, I'm really mad at the surgeon because he cut me. You know, we're all mad together because, you know, he put a knife in me and he stuck me. You don't have this group together of, he calls me pain and he charged me for it. I still owe him $7,000 for putting that knife in me. You know, he missed. You know, you look at that and you don't have anybody mad at the surgeon. Most of the time people don't get that ridiculous and get mad. Now, maybe if you took away the anesthesiologist, they might. The pain and the anger. Maybe that's the comfort zone in there is that guy. But you look at this and you check your maturity. Do you blame God when things go wrong? But watch this, but never thinking when things go great. There's a lot that are in this one majority group that it's just easy to be prone to. But you wonder, do anyone ever really thank him when things go really good? Like, have you given God thanks for your life and go, oh, at least this, this, and this work good for me? You know, it's amazing how God gets blamed for every bad thing but ignored for every good thing. For example, millions of planes fly safely every day. No one gets down on their knees and says, God, I thank you that today, on this date, that all the planes safely carried every passenger in every airport in every part of the world where they were going. Mm-hmm. I touch it, Psalm 91. Okay, think about this. Some of the passengers on that airplane are evil. And they're going to do bad things. And they're on the plane to go where they're going to do something bad. Yeah, some on the plane are missionaries. Some are pastors, preachers. Some have assignments from God. But there are days on your calendar that go day after day after day after day where every single plane, every single crew, every single passenger makes it safely where they're going. Every single day. 
but one plane that crashes and everyone screams, God. Isn't that interesting? He's not giving credit for all the good days. That's because man is smart and we've come up with this technology with computers and, and you can go into systematic landing. That's where the credit goes if it works. But if it doesn't work, it's not... It's odd how human nature goes. God is to blame when any one thing goes wrong. You know, sometimes it's the worst things in life that go wrong that there's blame. But sometimes it's pettiness. Sometimes the guy didn't get what he wanted, so it's God's fault. Or you have a flat tire on your way to work, and we wonder what we did wrong to make God mad at us that day. Do you have the mentality that, oh, I think God's mad at me? You know, it can be really big stuff to really dumb stuff. That you go into the area of the why. Now, at this point, I want you to think of this box that we've opened that's full of all this stuff, and we ask why. We ask why. Why God? You know the big question, why me, God? <laughs> when things go wrong, especially repetitive things in a row, why me, God? When we feel pain, when we suffer... What went wrong? Why has this happened? But I'm going to challenge this for a minute. But do we really want to know why? Because at first I wrote some hypothetical things that I put together from people I've talked to. You know, just hypothetical. Then I decided, no, I'm going to write you some real reasons. Because I'm going to challenge that thing. Do we really want to know why? The kids ask their mom, why are you and dad divorced? And she doesn't tell them something so horrible that happened to her that she can't dare say it. She can't dare do that to them and run their father to them. And it's the eternal whys the children ask their mom, Mom, why'd you do this? And she keeps the why in her heart. Day after day. And I'm saying we want to know the why, but sometimes I don't think we want to know the why. It's kind of like we want the bad things that happen to us to go right back into that box and we want the why to go back into the box you know the kid is angry at his dad and he rides a motorcycle so fast that he hopes something will happen and you find him wrapped around a pole the mother wants to know what happened why the man who a year ago his daughter said to him, Dad, I just wish you would die. You have caused us so many problems. In a few minutes, they hear a shot in the house. My friend walks in. A man so hurt because his sister is dying of a drug overdose, he blames God. Why did you let this happen? Why did you let this happen? I was within minutes of getting to my sister. I could have saved her, God. How come you let this happen? But secretly, he tells me, I'm the one that got my sister hooked on drugs. The why? And with Pandora's box, I think the number one question we always scream is why? But sometimes I think God in his mercy doesn't tell us the why. And that's when I'm with someone in grief and they're asking me why. Because people turn to me constantly. When something bad happens, they come to me why. And the best thing you can say is I love you. Because I don't know really if sometimes we want to know why. You know, in personal and family riddles of why the pain. My own personal family riddle. I always wonder why my grandfather 
uh, my, my dad's father never loved my grandmother. I thought I found out the why when I found out it was a second marriage. Well, I did, didn't have a mom and dad who were madly in love with each other. I always wondered why. When I became older, and right before my grandmother passed, I was the only one who found out why. And I was sorry I ever knew. You know, I didn't know, should I tell my dad? The why's. Yeah, there's personal riddles, there's personal things. With sin goes pain. With it is the blame. With it are so many of those personal things. In Pandora's box, we ask why, but I'm not sure we want answers. God, why did you make such a miserable, horrible world? Humans taking a piece of the responsibility for what one guy called the why pie. <laughs> are we going to take our slice out of the why pie and say, I'm responsibility? You know, we went to buy some gifts in the Philippines before we were leaving. And Steph looked at me and she goes, what is this? And I go, Steph, that is probably the most shocking, horrible, ugly picture I've ever seen in my whole life. We must buy one. <laughs> it was tobacco. And in America, we write, this may, surgeon's warning, this may kill you and destroy your life and everyone may hate you for doing it. You know, we put something like that on there. Not in the Philippines. Yo, I was buying it to bring it back. And Steph was like, you're going to have to smuggle it past the drug, you know. And y'all, it's a picture of a man with his face gone. And they drilled a hole in him and put a breathing tube. It's a person with, I mean, I've never seen pictures like this. Steph, describe some of those pictures. Just brutal. Just give me a little gore. Disfigured. The picture was gory I'm telling you, I just don't think you're satisfied till we look in the box into the emphysema box. Yeah. This I smoke the pack every day. The one when you're in cadaver school that the guys who are smoking and cutting Norman up, that they're looking at Norman and they get into his lungs and they take a tin can and they start getting the black stuff out of his lungs like this. Yeah, if it's chewing tobacco, it's terrible. <laughs> So everybody with Norman stopped smoking for a week. You know, they're not going to smoke after they saw what comes out of his lungs. Y'all, it's what's in the box. So from Genesis, we've traveled now thousands of years later. And there's still emotional examples of God being blamed. And I could tell sad stories all day, but it's not your sad story. And the one that means the most to you is yours. Those are those questions that grip the human heart. We don't dare say it, but secretly we believe God could stop it. Thousands cry for some sort of answer. The worst thing that has ever happened to you, have you secretly blamed? You know, I wrote this sentence down to myself. Have you ever gone into a pit, a pit so deep of feeling sorry for yourself? Sometimes, hello. Shay, I thought it was Monday. Shifting blame. Okay, that feeling so deep on there that you feel sorry for yourself. Like, I feel sorry for myself. I'm a victim. Have you ever felt it? That is one pit. I'm like, I don't let myself go into that pit. I mean, two minutes in the pit's dangerous. I mean, but can you... Some people enter the pit and they go, they like swimming in the murk. But if you are in feeling sorry for yourself, 
You have got to get out of the pit. The devil wants to make you a victim. I'm telling you, it won't work. Things won't work if you swim in that pit, if you feel sorry for yourself. Because you make up things to yourself where you feel sorry for yourself. You have got to reject that pit. Other people's decisions that have hurt you. Now this is where it gets tricky. It's okay. If I smoke tobacco, then I might be a poster child for the Philippines. That's okay. That makes sense. My sin. But where it gets really tricky and unfair is when somebody else's sin affects you. Mom says this so well. It's called the law of sowing and reaping. It's in what book of the Bible? Galatians. Whatever a man sows, he shall reap. It says, don't be deceived. Do not be deceived. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. That means it may not be, like my mother says, your law of sowing and reaping. Do you know what sowing and reaping is? It's not sowing. It's not sowing. Do you know what sowing means? Because you don't make your own bread, you don't know what sowing is. Here. Don't, you don't answer. I'm just trying to. Okay, because you don't make your own bread, it's, what's sowing? Yeah, throwing seed. So you throw seed and then you grow plants and you reap. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So they said if you've sowed really bad stuff in life, like if you're an angry person, you reap it. If you steal, you reap it. Whatever you sow, you reap. But sometimes you get caught in someone else's sowing and reaping. Now, if you sow bad stuff, that's called repentance, and you go, Lord, I pray for a crop failure. Or just don't let those seeds come up. I don't want that to happen. Okay, but this is where, like, somebody does something and it hurts someone else. Like a kidnapped baby. That baby didn't sow anything to make himself kidnapped, did he? But someone else's sowing and reaping hurt someone else. That means that we're not an island to ourselves. What you do affects me. What you do affects me. Isn't that odd that God has so made the fabric of humans that what another person does affects them. It's the law of sowing and reaping. Let's say that a car full of innocent people are killed by a drunk driver. That guy's decision to drink and to continue drinking and self-medicate and not let it turn over to God. He got behind the wheel that day. He's angry. And he wants to die, but he kills another whole carload. His law of sowing and reaping, you just got taken out by someone else's sowing and reaping. Because let me tell you something. When you want fair, this is something interesting. I would tell you only God gives you fair. But thank the Lord God doesn't give us fair. Because if we got what we deserve, we'd all be in trouble. God gives us mercy. But sometimes we're looking for fair, and I don't know where we're looking for fair. But the devil doesn't give you fair. And he tries to make it messy. Like, when he sticks the sword in you, he twists it. Like he hurts you. Like it happens on the worst day of your life. You know, my brother was telling me, you know, last year on the way to Dad's funeral, I got this certain text. It's like the devil lines things up. And so that's what I was going to tell you is you get in line with other people's law of sowing and reaping. In times of war, many people are killed. 
Sometimes we pay a price for the other person's freedom of choice. Does that help you understand things? It's not God doing it to you. It's not even an individual sin. It's the fall of man. And it opened up sowing and reaping. And as men sow and reap, innocent people are harmed. The devil always goes after the weak, the innocent, the, the ones that don't deserve it. So, now watch this. This is the opposite. If we're to reap the benefits of good labors of generations in the past, like people worked really hard to make a scientific discovery, so therefore, my generation reaped stuff we didn't sow. Like penicillin protects this generation because another generation did it. Like generations before us have sowed good things and we reaped them. Like we didn't invent the airplane in our generation. It was generations before. So if we're going to reap the benefits of labors of generation, how can we avoid reaping the evils as well? Do you see how it works? The law of sowing and reaping, it's not good nor bad. It's like gravity. It works. And it's a spiritual law. And did you know it doesn't just work among Christians? It works among people that don't know God's word. Whatever they sow, they'll reap. And everybody, if I looked around, everybody has a law of sowing and reaping going on in your life. You're sowing and reaping. And your law of sowing and reaping affects other people's law. Why do you think I get up and pray, Lord, I thank you I cannot be harmed, and I thank you I can't cause harm. That you just take harm away from me. Don't let me be able to harm anyone. So it could be that you're offended and pain because someone has done something to you, but it's not God. If a friend betrayed you, that doesn't mean God betrayed you. If a spouse has been unfaithful to you, it doesn't mean God did that. If your best friend lied to you, if someone hurt you, if someone's taken advantage of you, if there's people that call themselves Christians and they let you down and lie to you and hurt your feelings or ignore your needs, they're not doing the will of God in their behavior. Don't blame God for what people do. So the first thing we're seeing is our own things we do that are stupid, causes pain, and what other people have done causes pain. Okay, now we're headed into our own decisions which have hurt us. It tells us in James 1.13, no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted of God, for God is not tempted by evil, and he cannot and does not tempt anybody else. And it says, temptation's the word pierzo. It means T-T-T. People say it's temptation. It's Pierzo. It's, it's all three. TTT. Temptations, trials, and testing. That God does not tempt, test, or try with evil. Circle this, y'all. It's very important at the first of that verse. James says, let no one say this. Let nobody say that God does it. I mean, I don't know how you could get any clearer than that. Don't let anybody say that God does this. God does not test with evil. Don't let anybody say it. Man, church would be different if we didn't let anybody say that. Three quarters of churches would be gone. Because that's what they say every week. That's how they're spiritual. They say that God does this stuff. And it says don't let anybody say that. So sometimes we must say to ourselves, God didn't do that. It's always easy to blame God for problems or failures. We are never forced to do evil. 
you know, people blame it. Lord, you put me in this situation. Lord, you gave me those desires. God is never the source of your problems. Never. Don't ever go there. God never sets us up to fail. He doesn't set us up to fail. He waited till Abraham was ready to pass that test. He proves you, like my mom says. God will never lead you to a place where you're forced to do evil. The good news is, if a man passes a test or a temptation or a trial, he'll be stronger spiritually because he said no. It actually works in that direction. So James 1, 13 says, do not say this. And then James 1, 16 says, don't be deceived. It didn't say, don't be deceived, heathen people that don't know God. Don't be deceived, people who don't read your Bible. It says, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. That means church people, believers are deceived. That God is a good God. Y'all, when we're talking about whether God blames, this is what the verse you've got to know. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the fathers of light, whom there is no variation or shadow of shifting that moves around and changes things. God doesn't shift around. It's interesting, James calls him the father of lights. Is it a reference to God being the creator of everything that has lights? Suns and stars and reflection moons? James says it's a reason to show how God does not change. The sun, the moon, the stars, and the earth all move. They all rotate. They all change, causing shadows. The earth turns. The sun gives light. But there are shadows that are due to shifting and changing nature of creation. But with God, there is no variation or shadow that is called due to change. God doesn't shift. God does not change. What's the point? God only can give good gifts. This does not change. God will not and cannot do evil or cause bad things. God is not trapping us and he is not tricking you. God has nothing to do with the bad that's happened in your life. Nothing. God has nothing to do with it. The authority of God's word is right here telling you God has nothing to do with it. Every good and every perfect gift from, comes from God. Don't be deceived. Don't say it because all the other comes from temptations and testings and trials with evil. It's all coming out of this box. The box that God never wanted us to open. So, who is God to you? He's the one who gives you relief. He's the one who gives you real answers. Who gives you comfort. Who gives you wisdom. Who gives you a way of escape. That's who God is. But the devil tries to make you think it's God. He's still the little snake in the garden. Don't pick up the snake and pet him. Just because of the rattlesnakes in our box. Jesus' example. Jesus is a perfect example of God. Think about Jesus. He never handed a tumor and said, Oh, I'm going to take the tumor off of you and put it on you. Let's just switch tumors here. Or uh, God's teaching you something with that. Or today I'm passing out cancers. No, no. Let's slap this one with a heart attack. You never see Jesus. He never refused to heal anyone. He is the exact picture of who God is. You can't blame him. He didn't do it. The enemy. I want you to look at something here. 
You were the anointed guardian cherub, for I had ordained you. You were the holy mountain of God, and you walked with fiery stones. From the day you were created, you were blameless in all of your ways, until iniquity was found in you. By the vastness of your trade, you were filled with violence, and you sinned. Just like Adam and Eve, when the devil sinned, he wasn't killed on the spot. Revelations 12, 7-9 And there was a war in the heavens, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought the angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. When the devil sinned, he was kicked out and cast to the earth on the spot. He wasn't, he wasn't annihilated. I'm going to ask you a question. When I say don't blame God, then how about if we title this, Why don't we blame the enemy? Why don't we? Why doesn't Satan get the blame? Because y'all, somehow in, in theology we have one power source. 1 Peter 5.8 says the devil is not unemployed. We must resist him because he's on the prowl. Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion. He roaming about seeking someone that he can devour. It doesn't sound like he has it exactly planned out. He's just looking for somebody. Yeah. It's not fair things that have happened to you. The odd thing about tragedy is that the same sun that melts butter hardens clay. I have seen some people made noble and sensitive through suffering, but I've seen some people grow cynical and bitter. And I'm telling you, don't get hard. Don't get hard in your heart. Don't disengage from God. Let adversity draw you closer to God, not further away. Instead of looking for every excuse to blame God, trusting. Now, you need to know, you're not powerless. For God, in His unique smartness, created another box. And we have another trunk. And this time, it's what He says, I've been giving you gifts of power. Jesus coming to the earth changed this point of history. Did you know what? Faith now, I'm telling you, investigate this box. This is the one get into. Let your faith see what God has in there. Open this box. It's your authority box. It has unique things in it. We were praying with a little seven-year-old girl yesterday. She was crying. And she just shook. I felt so bad for her. Like just, it was just pitiful, the story of the fear. And she just started shaking. And we go, you have the name of Jesus. And all of a sudden you could see peace come on her. In the box is your authority. And that's what Jesus brought back. Did you know most churches don't teach about this box? They teach we're sinners, but they don't teach about this box. They don't tell you that you have armor you can put on. You have promises. They don't tell you every good thing you ever need is in this box. Wisdom and courage and strength. Faith. Faith makes you get in that box and see what you got. Faith makes this box go away. It's the goodness of God. Everything that God created in Genesis, He looked down and it says everything He created was, what did He say? Good. Good. Right there, it tells you everything. Everything God has done in your life is good. 
Everything God created is good. Don't listen to somebody that tells you different. They're deceived. God created is good. But there was a crazy chemist, a mad scientist, an evil wizard named Satan, and he modified everything. (laughs) He took good over here in Genesis, and he messed with it. He put fangs on it and venom. Love and mercy, full of blessings and patience and compassion and goodness and righteousness and justice and holy and kindness is God. That's what God is. God is love. Now, this is your test. God is responsible for all the good in the world. Man is responsible for his behavior. The enemy is the guilty party and the one responsible for John 10.10. Stealing, killing, destroying. It's very simple. That's our test. This is what God's responsible for. This is what the enemy's responsible for. And this is what you're responsible for. You're responsible for your behavior. You can choose now. You can get in this box or you can get in this box. You're free now where you have a choice. So, I would tell you... Number one, as we're closing this, I'm telling you, you've got to get your view of God correct. You've got to, y'all. You've got a Matthew 7 in. Every perfect gift is from a father. If your father being evil would not give you something bad, if he wouldn't switch gifts with you, if he wouldn't play mind games and give you a snake instead of a you know, an egg. If your earthly father would do it, it says it guarantees you that God will give you only good and perfect gifts. You've got to figure out you've got a good father. You've got to trust this father. You've got to trust that God's good. You've got to trust this good father image. Y'all, we don't need to repeat this mistake of this one. Don't spend 30 years before you figure this out. Hopefully you'll do it tonight and you'll say, I'm going to study what you're telling me. Because maybe I've been mixed up who my enemy is. Maybe that's the worst thing on the assassin if you get the character of God mixed up. You've got to know that the worst thing you can do to God is tell him you don't care. That when he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He took it personally when Christians were killed. Stephen, when he was being stoned... Stephen didn't cry out for himself. It says he cried out for Jesus. And it says that Jesus stood up. In heaven, it opened up the heavens. And Jesus and God were sitting on a throne. And Jesus stood up. I'm telling you, he pays attention. Lord, Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? That's the maddest Jesus got. He goes, question anything, but don't question what I care. When the guy was dead in in the coffin going past Jesus... Jesus stopped the funeral and he said, I'm going to raise this kid because he's the only son of his mother. Care. Not one sparrow falls to the ground without the father caring. Y'all, the one thing you can't doubt is that God emotionally cares for you. Emotionally cares for you. He emotionally loves you. Your greatest pain, if you hurt, he hurts. Why do you think Jesus died on the cross? It says, if God would freely give us his own son, what makes you think God wouldn't give you anything else you need? Y'all, he cares for you.
if your mom, if your dad did you wrong, if someone did you wrong, if there's some horrible thing that you're hiding that hurts so bad, I'm going to tell you, God cares. And he brought you here tonight to hear this. I woke up out of bed last night because I'd still come home from the Philippines, and I felt this crazy amount of fear in me. Like fear just engulfed me, like raging fear. And I jumped out of bed, and I was thinking about my friend, my Filipino friend who died. And I was thinking about a friend I have right now who wrote me a letter and said they're in danger. And this friend said to me, I may never see you again, but I'll see you in heaven face to face. Just know that I will see you. And I'm telling you something in me. He put his life in my hands and he said, you make the decision whether I live or die. Me and about 50 other people. And y'all, it got too close together for me. It was like I had just lost one and I have another 50 hanging on me. And a date. And fear raged inside of me. And I started feeling myself, it went from fear to anger. And I was like, I can't sleep. I can't sleep at all. I can't get two or three hours of sleep because I'm thinking when I sleep, something's going to happen. I can't quit praying. I mean, you just feel all these crazy thoughts. And suddenly, I thought what I've got to do is trust him. i got to trust him. And I started telling myself stories of times that God has never let me down. Times when it should have gone crazy bad. Times that even the worst thing that I had to go face in the Philippines, it worked for good. And I started telling my stories of God's trust. And I started recounting that other really great things that God did in my life. And I said, maybe everywhere else, maybe it goes down wrong, but not here. And I'm going to tell you, when the enemy comes in to make you afraid, to blame, I'm encouraging you, tell yourself your story of trust. Tell yourself a Bible story of trust. Tell yourself someone else's testimony of trust. Start recounting to God trust. Give God something to work with. And pull it down. Amen.